We turn in God's word again in our study of 1 Timothy. Tonight we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we continue in that chapter, when we were last together, we were dealing with uh, the leadership of the church and uh, for both the elders and for the deacons, as Paul outlines it by the Holy Spirit for Timothy as to what is to be done there at the church at Ephesus. This evening we pick it up at verse 14, and uh, we're going to read 14 through 16. It's a small little section, but it's one of those sections that the more you think about, and the more you read about, and the more you reflect upon, it just grows and grows and grows. So I was going to do the whole thing in one sermon. That wasn't going to happen, okay? It just wasn't going to happen. Um, there is so much here, and there is so much here that is pressing upon the day and the hour in which we live. Um, it, it is an important text, and so we, we need to take our time making our way through it. And so let's hear this breathed out word of God, not only to the people, to Timothy, to the church there at Ephesus, to that New Testament church, but to the church of Jesus Christ of all time and ages, ourselves included. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I ask you to leave the scriptures open as we consider this evening verses 14 and 15. But before we do so, let's bow in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for gathering us here together, that we could gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and hear your word proclaim and praise your name. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fact we got here. We had the health and strength of transportation, a beautiful day. All these blessings we get from you, we thank them in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Before I begin, I, I, I will comment. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord tonight. There is nothing going on in the world at this moment that is more important than to be in the house of God. Right? One could be in a stadium, That is nowhere comparison to being in the presence of the living God. So as a pastor, I thank you. It is an encouragement uh, for myself, for Pastor Mark, for the elders as well, uh, to see so many of you, especially, okay, not just gray-headed people like myself, but you young people. It's good to see you here. Thank you. We turn then to these two verses. Tonight, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to cover it under under just two points this evening. That doesn't mean it's short. It's two points this evening. First, 
the term that Paul uses. There is a term here that that we need to stop and, and to reflect upon. It's an important term. It's a weighty term. It is a beautiful, precious term. Secondly, the reason Paul is writing. He states something in this section that that we can't miss. I know we're probably chomping at the bit, myself included, to get to a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's what the church is to be. Yeah, I can't wait to get to that either. But Paul didn't put that first. He put something else first. And I think we need to pause and to reflect upon what Paul, by the Holy Spirit, put before that so that when we come to that very powerful text and then the great confession that follows in verse 16, how it is we're supposed to understand that pillar and buttress of truth and the great confession that is given then in verse 16 as well. So what is the term that Paul uses? Well, the term I'm looking at is the household of God. The household of God. I hope to come to you soon, Paul writes, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. First point, the church is God's. Paul is making that through the Spirit abundantly clear. Church is God's. Church is not my church. The church is not Mark's church. The church is not our church. It is God's. It is God who forms the church. It is God who calls people into the church. And it is God who rules the church in and through Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. Can't forget that. Sometimes we we act as if it is our church, that it does belong to us. And therefore, we have the right to determine where the church goes. And we have the right to to form what that church is going to look like and how that church is going to act and, and how that church is going to behave. We can't do so, friends. It's God's church. It's God who has called us into this place. It is God who has called us into this relationship. And it is God who rules by his word and by his spirit. We may think we know better. We may think we come up with better ideas. We may think that we are wiser than God. We talked about that a little bit this morning in adult Sunday school, how in those 1800s, late 1800s, it it became a, a man's mind is greater than God's word. And man's mind could, could determine what it was that the living God was saying and decipher it and change it. And, and we look at that and we go, no, 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 that can never be, that, that's wrong. And yet sometimes so subtly, so subtly, we seek to do so ourselves, our own hearts, longing for that control, longing for that authority. 
Even as we hear that tempting voice of the devil, you shall be like God. That continually gnaws even at our own hearts. So much so that the word tells us we have to say, be gone, Satan, leave. It is God's church. Even though he has talked to Timothy about about what Timothy is to do there at the church of Ephesus, he's talked about installing elders and deacons of dealing with the false teachers. It's all because it belongs to God. It is his precious possession. That's what Psalm 35 is getting across, or Psalm 135 is getting across that, that we used as our call to worship and then we sang basically the entirety of. It's saying as Israel was God's treasured possession, so we as the people of God, as the church, as they, as the church of the Old Testament, we as the church of the New Testament are God's treasured possession. We belong to him. This place, this ministry, this work belongs to God and to God alone. It is not ours. And so we need to to take care of it. We, We need to be responsible with that which God has given to us. But we also need to rejoice in that. In the goodness of God, in making us part of that the term Paul uses, first, the church is God's. But secondly, the church is God's household. Or in some of your versions, it's God's house. The word household and house carry with it much more than just the idea of a building. In fact, Paul is, is, is steering us away from that concept here. He's talking about how our houses, how our homes are places of a relationship. And, and what he's saying to us is that the church is a place of relationships. The relationship that we have to God as a father, the relationship that we have to Christ as an elder brother, and the relationship that we have to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul isn't saying that the church is just like any other assembly. It's like a bunch of political people all gathered together under, under one idea, under one motive. It's not like the pottery guild that would meet in Ephesus. It's not like, like those who are the silversmiths of Ephesus who are going to meet and, and form a meeting probably about how they're going to raise prices on little statuettes of Diana. The church is a place where there are living relationships that exist it is God's household it is within the confines not the confines of this building but it's within the confines of those who are members of the church 
And here he means in particular a local church. Yes, it's true of the church of Jesus Christ as far as the invisible church, but it's also true in terms of this visible church. And we could say it's true then, or it should be true, of this visible church, of Little Farms. That this is a place where where there is an active relationship that is taking place between the Father, between our elder brother, and between one another as believers in Jesus Christ. It is God's household. And just as in our households, just as in our homes, there are certain expectations. There are certain expectations as to how people are going to act. There are certain expectations as to how people are going to behave. There, there are certain responsibilities that are given to various members of that household. There is some sort of code of conduct that is given not just while you're in the house, but when you walk out of the doors of the house as well. That there there is an emphasis upon the fact that you belong to a family unit. And as that family unit, you have to conduct yourself in a certain way when we are together. But when you walk out of those doors, young man, you better behave like you belong to this family as well. You better not do anything. And I can hear probably some of your fathers having said this to you. You better make sure that when you walk out of this place, that you honor the name that you carry. And that you don't do anything to dishonor our name. The church is the household of God. And if there is a certain way that we are to conduct ourselves within God's household, he certainly also then has the right to say, and when you leave these doors, and when you go out there, you better represent me well. You better represent the name that you bear as Christian also. But there is another aspect, you see, and this is, this is sometimes, yeah, you can look over that, but, but then you start looking at this text and you start thinking about this. There's something even deeper yet here that Paul is, is speaking about. And out of his Jewish context, out of the, the Old Testament context, understand what he's saying about the church. Because in the Old Testament context, there was a house for God as well, wasn't there? It was called the temple. And what happens in that temple? But God dwelt within that temple. It's not just that God owns the church. It's not just that God rules the church. It's not just that God forms and calls the church, that God has this relationship of father, but he's not an absentee father. It's not like his house, but you never see the guy. It's not like he's, he, he, he says, this is, this is my home, but you never see him. God, this, this term, the household of God, means that God is present. 
that God is there. And Paul is bringing that Old Testament understanding of the presence of God dwelling in that temple now that God's presence dwells within his church. Once again, not thinking of a structure, but thinking of a body, but thinking of the membership. God dwells within. And think about that as we, we go back then and are reminded of the fact, where is it that Timothy is called to serve? He's called to serve at Ephesus. And there in Ephesus, and I probably mentioned this before, but it it needs to be repeated here, stands one of the seven wonders of the world. A temple so large, a temple so beautiful, a temple so ornate, a temple to, to the goddess Diana, or Artemis as she's known in other places. One of the seven wonders of the world stands on a mountain so that as you would, you would come into the, to the harbor, you could see it for miles and miles and miles. People by the hundreds of thousands would flock to this place. And there in the midst of it is a statue, a statue of this goddess. And that's all the statue can do. It can't move, it can't speak, it can't wink, it can't smile. It is dead. There is nothing to it. And if I go to the temple of Diana, what is there? Who's speaking to me? Nobody is speaking. Because all there is is stone. There's nothing. Psalm 135, the gods of the nations are nothing. But the church, this is the house of the living God. And God is home. God is not absent. God is not away. God dwells with And in his people. See why we we couldn't just brush by this and rush by it and go, oh, let's get to the pillar and buttress of the truth. There is something so beautiful in this simple statement of Paul. Something so marvelous, it, 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 it changes the whole perspective of these lifeless idols. And yet here's the church at Ephesus, the place where the Father dwells with his people and the place where Christ indwells his people. See, the temple that Paul has in mind here is not the temple that's made with human hands, but it's the temple that's made by the work of the Holy Spirit in calling us out of darkness into God's marvelous light that we 
that we might be the ones on the mountain calling out the praise of the living God. Oh, this is beautiful. This is so amazing. Take, go with me. Uh, keep your finger here. Go with me back to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul has already shared this, this understanding previously when he, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus as a whole. Go chapter 2 verse, let's, let's pick it up at verse 18. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in home, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he's not talking again to the building that the church at Ephesus meets in, that upper room, okay, where, where a little boy is gonna fall out of the window of because it got late at night as Paul kept on preaching. He, he's not talking about that, that little building, that, that little house church they have. He, he's talking about the fact that they, they are the temple of God and that the living God moves and dwells within them. What a glorious truth to a people that are overwhelmed by the paganism that surrounds them. A whole city based upon the culture of that paganism. Not unlike ourselves, is it? Not unlike the world in which we live in. One of the churches in Costa Rica that I had the privilege of preaching at on a Lord's Day meets in a upstairs room of an apartment building, probably seven, eight stories in the air. The top floor, the street is narrow, there is no parking. It's pretty much in the, sort of in the middle of downtown San Jose. It's not easy access. They get a little sign on the door <laughs> on Sundays to, to be able to tell people they're there. They started less than a year ago as a mission church. There were 150 people. It defied all the rules and all the logic of church growth and evangelism. You would never plant a church there. But you see, it's the church of the living God. It's alive. Because God is there. God is present. And in the midst of a culture that's hustling and bustling on a Lord's Day, pretending that this is no different, there are 150 believers in an upstairs apartment 
called there, gathered there by God. And God is there. And there was the household of God. See, this is the beauty of this text. This is something we we can put in our back pocket and take with us throughout this week. As we hear news, as we see reports, as some of you realize the filth and trash that took place at Grand Valley this past week, here we are. Not this building, not the structure, but us, the temples of God where God dwells, the living God lives. Ah, this is amazing. Secondly, the reason Paul writes. Let's go back to the passage in Timothy. And what do we find? What, what does Paul say? Well, look at the beginning. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, if I delay, Paul is writing because he is not sure what God's step-by-step plan for his life is. Paul knows what God's plan is, that in all things, God would conform him to the glorious image of Christ. Paul knows, okay, that God's promise to him is that he will take him to be with Christ in glory. Paul knows the overarching plan. He doesn't know the step-by-step things that may occur. And so he says, I'm not sure I'm actually ever going to get there, Timothy. Well, why isn't he sure? Because the writing of 1 Timothy takes place somewhere between 60 and 65 AD. The book of Acts is already done. Everything you read in the book of Acts has already happened by the time Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul has already been in prison once. It's going to happen to me. I don't know. I don't know what God's step-by-step plan is. I don't know what God's step-by-step plan is for me, and I don't know what his step-by-step plan is for you. I know what the plan is. That I'm confident of. But the day by day, even Paul here is admitting, if I delay, what might be the delay? I might get imprisoned again. I might never come to you. I might never make it back to Ephesus. I might die. And because I will not do, be for sure be able to deliver this in person, I need to tell you this. That makes this pretty weighty, doesn't it? Sort of like Paul is saying to Timothy, here's, here's sort of my, you know, my last statement to you, son. The last thing I might be able to communicate to you. I want to make sure I get this right. And notice what it is. Make sure, Timothy, <laughs> that everyone knows how to behave in church. 
Make sure everyone knows how to behave. That's what he says. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Yeah. How should we behave in church? Oh, I'm not thinking about that little announcement that keeps appearing in the bulletin. We can probably end that now. Okay. About behavior in church, cell phones and food and drink and all of those things. No, Paul's not talking about that. But Paul is talking about how do we, as those who belong to the family of God, behave? What is the behavior that is expected of the church? In the doors and when one leaves the doors. Because we bear not only the name of Christian here, we bear it when we go out these doors as well. How should one behave? Well, Paul has already to Timothy laid out some of those things, hasn't he? We've covered them over the weeks. One should have correct doctrine. That was the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 1. One should, should have the right responsibilities according to gender. Paul has dealt with that. What are our responsibilities as men, as women? What responsibilities fall to us? How should one conduct oneself? Apart from, different from that which the Father has spoken? Or should we conduct ourselves as the Father has spoken? Should we develop our own theologies, our own doctrines, or should we follow that which the Father has given to us? And we should have the right leadership. Those who who are appointed, the elders and the deacons, as Paul has said. Now, Paul is going to say much more, okay? But I'm going to reserve those things for the sermons that are to come. But if we dig into Paul's writings, let me give you at least six, at least six things that Paul would say to Timothy, okay, as far as how should one behave in church. Now, Paul doesn't have to list all those things here because you're going to say, well, they're not here. He doesn't have to because he's already has, but he is going to tell us more. But those are the sermons that are to come. Else I have nothing to preach about for a while. But what are those things? Well, let me take you down through a list. We are to pray. One of the things that the Father expects of us in his household is that we pray for one another. Paul spends a great deal of time talking about asking and requesting various churches to pray for him. And then he he spends time saying that he prays for them as well. But probably it comes out most explicitly if you turn to Ephesians 6. Paul says it very clearly. This, This is what we are to do. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're to pray for one another. That's one of the, the, that's one of the ways we are to behave as the church. 
We're to be praying. We spend a lot of time doing other things. How much time do we actually spend in prayer for one another? How often do you take the prayer list that sometimes gets generated on Monday and sent out that throughout the week, I know some of you are faithful. Some of you are prayer warriors. I'm not saying nobody does. The question is, do we all sense that is our responsibility? These are things that we, that our members have asked and requested prayer for, and we are to pray for one another. Secondly, we are to serve. Turn to the book of Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This too is the command of God. This too is what Christ is commanding us as his people, that we should have a servant's heart that we should be striving to be a blessing in other people's lives. That we should not consider ourselves too good, too busy, too important to serve another person, to serve another member of the household of God. Third, Galatians chapter six, verse two. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And pay attention to the next line. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to be people who take upon the weight, the burden. of other people's lives. We're to have that weight upon us. It's not like we come here and then leave and it's like, okay, all I got to do is show up at church on Sundays. If all I do is come and and gather and sing some songs and kind of go through the motions, I'm okay, that's all right. No, no, that's not the conduct. That's not the behavior of the church. The behavior of the church is that it bears each other's burdens. It feels the weight and the crush that is upon their lives. And we seek to be understanding of that weight and crush, not dismissing, not haughty. It's not a coming and being in superiority over them. It's coming alongside and lifting. Saying, brother, let me carry that load of rocks for you. To bear one another's burdens. Philippians chapter 2. Notice these are all from Paul's writings. Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider, count others more significant to yourselves. Look, let each of you look 
not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. We're to be people who, are, who have eyes to see needs, eyes to see how to help, how to serve, how to love, how to correct. That we're not all wrapped up in ourselves, that we're not wrapped up in our families, that we're not wrapped up in our own individual lives. But we are wrapped up in the lives of those who are part of the household of God. Because that is what the Father does. The Father is all wrapped up in our lives. And he certainly has demonstrated in Christ how to bear our burdens and to the extent to which he was willing to do so. I write to you these things, Timothy, because in case I'm delayed, in case I don't make it there, you, you need to know how should one behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. We're to act decently and in good order. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. That in everything we do, we do so decently and we do so orderly. And if you ask me and said, well, well, what would decently be? Decently would be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. How do we behave? Decently. Sometimes church is the most vicious place people go during the week. That's sad, isn't it? It's sad. It's sad that when they can go out into the world, they can go out into their workplace, they can be surrounded by pagans and be treated more decently than they are by brothers and sisters in Christ. That isn't right. That's not according to the rules. That's not what the household of faith and the household of God is to be like. We are to pause. We are to reflect. We're not to be the world. We're not to emulate the world. We're not to follow the pattern of this world. That fruit, singular fruit, is to be that which we display on an ongoing, regular basis. Maybe we need to remember those verses and not go, oh, those are nice kids' verses, yeah. Makes a nice little song, yeah. Now, maybe we as adults need to take it to heart. How am I supposed to act in church? To be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's how I'm supposed to act in church. And in good order. I I follow an orderliness pattern. I do that which is in the right way. I close with one more. We're going to find it in the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 6. I know it's already quarter two. Don't worry about it. 
We studied a number of weeks ago on Wednesday Night Fellowship a man by the name of John Knox. I don't know how much you know about John Knox, but he's worth a good read. He's a faithful, stalwart, Presbyterian, Scottish minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no man that that I can truly say that we have studied over the course of, of this fall and now winter of these heroes of faith that I, I can truly say withstood more for the cause of the gospel than John Knox. This is no wimp. This is no soft man. This is a man who took a very hard and difficult stance against Queen Mary, bloody Queen Mary. He had audiences with her. His life is on the line in those audiences with her. He wrote some pretty tough treatises against her. He spent, I think it's seven to nine years, somewhere in that, fra- in that time frame, on a galley ship rowing as a slave. No breaks. <laughs> you know, it's no, oh, hey, I, got, I get my coffee break at nine, right? Seven to nine years. Why? Because he was a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the Reformed faith. John Knox once wrote, you cannot antagonize an influence at the same time. That's quite a reflection from this man. But it's a spiritual reflection. It's a biblical reflection. Let me state it again. You cannot antagonize an influence at the same time. If your goal is to antagonize, (laughs) That's what's going to happen. But if your goal is to influence, you can't do it by antagonizing. Perhaps he learned that over the course of life. Perhaps he just realized there were some times I'm going to antagonize for the cause of truth. Has to be done. But he also knew that's not going to be influential. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech... Always, not sometimes, not part of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. When you leave this place, what is our speech to be like? Gracious, seasoned with salt, gracious because you see our goal in life should not be to antagonize our goal in life is to be the aroma of Christ that came from a man who understand the lashes across his back that came from a man who spent his entire life basically under threat of death Would he proclaim the gospel and God's word boldly? Absolutely. That pulpit of Knox got thumped more times than the pulpit at Little Farms. 
Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? Because we are part of the household of God. See, it's not that we're not to be influential. It's not that we're not to make a difference. Paul's going to go on to say, because the church is to be the pillar and bulwark of truth. But how does it do that? How does it go about that? What are the means it uses to accomplish that purpose? Well, that's where we go in the weeks to come. For now, I think we have enough to chew on, each one of us. Let us be that. Not just here, not just as we gather, but remember that as we leave, we continue to be the household of God. For we bear, wherever we go, the name of Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that even though this word is challenging and difficult, especially in the day and age in which we live, we pray, Lord, that here too, your presence, your fullness, your indwelling will lead us and guide us to your truth. Father, there is much that Paul is still going to tell this young pastor, Timothy, and to the church at Ephesus, Words that call them to the fight. Words that call them to the truth. Words that call them, Father, not not just to let things go, but to deal with them and to deal with them firmly. And so, Father, we pray that as we anticipate those passages and look forward to what it is you have to say to us in our day and age, that, Father, we will not forget this word that you have spoken to us tonight as well, that we might know how to behave as part of the household of God. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people say, amen.